More Real, a podcast about real people for real people. I wanted to create a space where I share my true feelings and those of my guests about what it's like to live in today's world. The challenges we face and how we deal with them or don't. What about all that stuff that's just not said but should be? You know, the conversations that we really want to have but don't. What do we really think and feel? What about our regrets, the dreams that we have and the stuff we should be doing but we don't? Each week, I'll be here talking to real people about real life. This is a very honest look at life and hopefully, by listening, it will help you to have a better understanding of yours. Where do you belong? This question threw up a lot of issues and challenges that Shelley had to deal with in her life. Moving to a new place and having to try and fit into the myriad of social groups at her new school. Initially being rejected, feeling very alone and like she didn't belong or was accepted. Being loved truly by her family, but not by boys. Having no self-respect and doing things she knew were wrong, but needing to feel like she was being seen, so did them anyway. Then came the point of no return when enough was enough. She wanted out and to go somewhere where people understood her and that she felt like she belonged. She had searched for so long to find happiness, a sense of belonging and acceptance when what she really needed was always there inside of her, but she just hadn't seen it. Happiness lies within. Shelley, throughout her adult life, turned to alcohol to give her the buzz she needed and to hide how she really felt. This went on for some time until one day, unfortunately, she had an instant that changed her life. I truly hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Welcome. Thank you. Where do you belong? (laughs) Where do I belong? You know, it's an interesting question when you think about where do you belong because, you know, there's there's career, there's family, there's friendships, there's places you like to be when you're on your own, but I belong exactly where I am right now. There's nowhere else that I feel that I need to be. There's nowhere else I yearn to go. I belong right here. And have you always felt like that? Have I always felt like I belonged? No, definitely not. I suppose if I think back to my earliest of childhoods, yes, I definitely felt like I belonged. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, single parent family, uh, raised by my mom and with one a brother and we were 21 months apart and probably up until I was in the fifth grade going into year six life was fine I mean you know the usual sort of growing up stuff but I felt very comfortable I felt loved I felt like I belonged and did you have an issue with was your father around no he was not he was not around but did you have an issue with the fact that he you didn't have your father wasn't around it was just your mum did you feel different because other people did have both parents no no I didn't because First of all, I was quite young, but second of all, my grandfather, my Zadie in particular, was incredibly involved in our lives, so 
I had that really loving, caring, kind, positive male role model in my life. Um, I'd say he was a better role model and influence and st stable, you know, uh, human than my own mother was <laughs> in, in those early years because she was still such a young woman wanting to have fun and party and do all those sorts of things when even though you know she had, she did she took care of us and all that sort of but my grandfather my Zadie he was definitely around so did I know that I didn't have a father yeah definitely did I know that he wasn't around and you know I didn't see him regularly and yes definitely I knew that too but did it make me feel sad or like something was missing or no it didn't it didn't. And in a world where conforming is important, mm. you wouldn't have been like everybody else. So that's, even yeah. though you were young, mm. even at that age, you're going to stand out on some level. Yeah. I stood out for other reasons. <laughs> I don't think that I worried about it. You know, like I think that I was one of those kids who, up until just before I started grade six, I didn't care. I had friends, I was having fun. Life was good, you know, whatever. And then once we made that transition and moved, because we lived in Detroit, and I went to Detroit public schools. They were very mixed race. There was no issues. It was fun. It was great. Then we moved because financially my mom couldn't afford the home we were living in, so we moved in with my grandparents. And they lived in a suburb of Detroit called Southfield, and I went to the Southfield Public Schools starting... And year six is the first year of middle school in the United States. So, brand new school. Most kids are coming... Well, all the kids are coming from various other primary schools to this middle school. Already with cliques. Already with friendship groups. Already with people they've known their whole lives. And I'm coming in knowing no one. Not only <clears throat> am I coming in not knowing anyone... It was a Jewish school. So it was a Jewish area, predominantly white, Anglo. There were African-Americans that went to the school as well, but I had never been surrounded by such a group of, you know, the ethnicity of this crowd of kids who were, say, two or three tiers above socioeconomically. So we were quite lower middle class income not lower middle class behavior wise, I suppose, if you're going to care, but definitely lower middle class income wise. And all these kids I was all of a sudden going to school with were rich kids, you know, so they had the designer clothes, they had the groovy shoes, they had the hairdos, they had the, everything was right. Whereas I came in with my nerdy jeans and my, you know, greasy hair and my, you know, never even knew that there was anything like a popular crowd or a loser crowd or a nerdy crowd or this crowd. I never knew anything existed like that. So it was a really sort of tough introduction into the world of typical American school systems. And they all knew to varying degrees their groups, like you said, from oh, each other. Sure and you didn't did. know anybody? Nobody. Not a single soul. And so how was that then? You didn't, oh, obviously, there we go, you didn't belong there. At first I didn't even, you know, I hadn't even thought about it because I was always the kind of a kid who was just like, I never thought about much too hard. You know, you have certain kids who are very introverted or they they think a lot or they worry a lot or whatever. And I was just, 
I still am to this day. I don't put much thought into, you know, I just am faced with something and I go for it, you know, and you deal with whatever when you get there. So I was completely unprepared. So I went into school the first day not even feeling like I was the new kid. I was just excited, just excited. I think by the end of that first week, I was completely just... I didn't even know what I was. You know, I had no friends. No one would even kind of sit with me at lunch. And, oh, it was just the most bizarre feeling. And so, and I have no memory of talking to anyone about it. Was it any part of you that kind of went then? So how old have you been? 12? So, yeah, I think in year six, year... 11, 12? 12, 11, 12, yeah. Were you went, oh, okay, this is because I've gone to a new school, so I kind of get this, or were you no, no, no. none of that? It was just going, no. oh my God, this is weird, I can't handle yeah, this. Yeah, this is really weird. You know, why are people like that? Why are people so unfriendly? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why isn't anyone talking to me? And, you know, and then, like, I don't remember actually talking to anyone about it. At that point, also, my brother was still at the elementary school, so he wasn't with me either, but he was making friends immediately, and he would come home every day so happy, and, you know, I was like, what? And I think because I had, I had so much love at home, you know, I'd come home, and my grandfather would be there, and I loved him to bits. We had the best relationship, so... Hugs and kisses and fun and going to movies and all that. And my mom was cool. And I don't think... At that point, I was able to just go school, school, homes, home. But then I started to make some friends. And then I started to switch on to the hierarchy of the way that the system worked. And then... And how did you make the friends? So the friends were just all the outcasts. <laughs> they were sort of... We, find, we found each other. I don't know how it worked, but... An eye contact, a smile, seeing somebody else sitting on their own. And and all of a sudden I had my first couple of friends and that felt good. And we had fun, you know, so we'd play together out in the yard, schoolyards and we'd go to each other's houses and, and um, they were great people, you know, and I had fun. But all of a sudden I started to also realize the way... The sis- that there was a system and that there was cla- there was a class system I suppose you know and that I wanted to be part of the higher class you know the, the high class tier I wanted to be the popular girl and have the boyfriend and wear the clothes and you know, some of these girls to me and, and the boys just seemed so beautiful and so perfect and so, oh, it was very strange. And so I started to almost resent the friends that I had because, well, I must be a loser. They're all losers. So why am I friends with losers? I shouldn't be friends with any, you know, it's, it's very strange. So moving through middle school was, a very interesting sort of emotional development. And of course, at that age, you're starting to go through puberty and things like that as well. But by the time I got to eighth grade, I got myself in with a cool crowd of smoke, dope smoke. 
but how smokers this... and and even at that young age, you know, they were all trying things for the first time, you know, skipping school a little bit, having ciggies and hiding and experimenting with a few little things and, you know, so, and all of a sudden I felt accepted by a group, so I just thought, well, this is fun, I'll just go along with this group. Completely rejected those first friends that I made as well, by the way. And how do, you, how do you look on that now? How do you feel about that? Very regretful because, you know, I think that they were probably the right people for me. You know, looking back in hindsight, you know, they were so nice and we had so much fun and it was so natural. And in my head, they weren't good enough because I wanted to be part of this other crowd. And then, yeah. And this, the crowd, but then you, you talked about this class system and, oh, and yeah, all the rest yeah. of it. This crowd that you're talking about now yeah, they wasn't that they new. weren't, but they were closer to that crowd. Uh, they were they weren't closer to that crowd in status because if you you know status cheerleader football player jock gorgeous all that that was like the top of the echelon you know, but this group was still had a reputation as being cool. You know, and being that little bit edgy and that little bit on the fringe. And it was so like that old movie, The Breakfast Club. Yep. You know, where they all got together and they were the jock and the this and the that. So, yeah, all of a sudden I found myself in a group, right? And I had never been in a group before. So that was very, it was fun. And there were a lot of very fun times that came out of it. But also, not so healthy not <laughs> so wholesome <laughs> but did you have an underlying sense of this doesn't feel right to me no or, no, no. i just happy because right. i'm it just belonging right. with i'm with yeah. people so and i so you so you felt like you belonged that was yeah, important to you then i did i did and you know and then as my brother came into the middle school as well and then high school eventually high school because high school is nine through twelve just like it is here well here it's seven but yeah our friends started melding into the same groups and we would have a lot of fun together and a lot of crazy parties. And my mom was always the kind of mom who didn't, because by then my grandfather had remarried because my Nana died when I was in year seven. So as we went into high school, he remarried and he moved out of the house. So the house was now our house. But yeah, our house became the party house. It kind of went the, it had the tide turn. So this group of people that I revered and thought that I had to be part of this popular, I kind of turned it like an, I don't want to be friends with those people. Those people are so fake. And, and I was having mind expanding experiences, discovering the meanings of life and experimenting physically with, with people and, you know, those sort of things. So yeah, I kind of, realized that I was where I needed to be at that particular time. So I did feel like I belonged for a short time, those sort of couple of years. And then as you kind of get older, I was always a very overweight girl as well. So quite, um, so I never had like the boyfriend. I was always the friend in the friend zone with everyone. The weight thing was just because you, you ate too much or you had an issue with your body. I don't know. What was the reason behind you? Well, look, I mean, there's a million reasons why kids are overweight. Genetics, uh, there are definitely some genetics in the family where a lot of the women and some of the men and ki- as even from kids were all heavy, you know, overweight. I don't think the my mom was particularly educated as far as 
nutrition and what's healthy and what's and I think it was also not as expensive it was because we didn't have a whole lot of money there was also in these schools what they called the free lunch program so I would get a ticket every day and I would get a free lunch and the school lunches aren't particularly healthy or nutritious and then I didn't really like those so I'd have I think 25 cents or 50 cents and I'd buy a bagel and I'd buy a peanut butter slice and you know so you just and I probably had the propensity to put weight on whereas some kids can eat just what I was eating but and I didn't play sport were you kind of conscious of the fact that you were overweight oh yeah I definitely always knew I was of the fat kid and did that Um, what did you think about that well again going back to elementary school so kindergarten right through to grade five never bothered me at all never even thought about it when I got to this middle school I definitely felt it because being overweight being fat wasn't pretty wasn't accepted in the popular groups wasn't you didn't fit the fit you know you didn't fit the criteria you know I would never have been able to wear a cheerleading outfit Although girls these days do, of all shapes and sizes, and good on them, because I think that's just fabulous. But at that point in my, no. So yeah, I became aware of my physicality and that it wasn't the boys that I liked, the boys that I wanted to have as my boyfriend or had my crushes on, weren't the kind of boys who would have a fat girl for a girlfriend, so... That was all. That was there as well. That was always there, and I was quite jealous. And you know, in your head, you think, if only, if only I was thin, if only I could lose some weight, then everything in my life would be perfect. You know. So, but then you don't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, that definitely affected affected my. But then I think I sort of, in my head, rationalized it out and was accepting that I was the friend. Could you go to anybody and talk to them about it? See, it's funny because my friends never said anything about it. My good girlfriends, you know, a couple of good girlfriends that I had and and this friend from when I was a baby and everything, they never, we knew it was there, you know, but it was never cared about. And I would talk about it sometimes with my mom, like, but she was, she would say things like, if we would go to a restaurant or a fast food place for dinner or something and my two brothers ordered say McDonald's, for example, they'd get an apple pie, and I'd go, oh, can I have one too? And my mom would say things like, do you really need that? (laughs) So it was an undertone in my family. But then I had my Zadie saying to me, I'd love you if you were 500 pounds, you know, so he never cared either. So it was a real mixed message kind of thing that I had. I thought that being popular and being in that crowd was a cool thing then being thin and slim went along with that too. So it was always there. It was always, I always struggled. That was definitely something I always struggled with, my um, physicality. And really it wasn't until oh, years and years and years later when I started to actually lose weight that I ever realized how being overweight was shit. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So even though I knew it and I wanted to be thin, I never did anything about it, you know. But when I did do something about it, the, and you lo- you know, you finally lose all that weight, you think to yourself, oh my God, what if I put it back on again? 
oh, I must have looked really bad. I must have, you know, been horrible. And then all of a sudden you become obsessed with not putting that weight back on. So I always say that I never had a weight problem until I lost weight. Yeah, which is very ironic, isn't it? So, yeah, that's when my, truly my weight issues began when I lost weight. And yeah. then to go back to the, so the boy friends, the boy, yeah. so what so what happened? So you said to me, you were, obviously you were fat, overweight, whatever. Yeah. And therefore the guys that you wanted to be with didn't want to be with you. Yeah. How, what, what, how did that manifest and what was, when did you become... Yeah, well, I never had a boyfriend until I actually met Mark, like a proper boyfriend. So in my twenties, but I would be the girl. I would be the girl that would be the behind the scenes girl. So I was never that person who I would go out on a date, or I'd be taken to the football game, or I'd be taken to the movies, or I'd be you know taken out to a restaurant. Never, never, never that girl unless it was with a group of friends. When you're looking for that kind of love and that acceptance, so you kind of will take it wherever you can get it. And so it was more a matter of secret meetings with boys on the side that would never, you know, so I guess people would call them booty calls. <laughs> so, yeah, I was but would you initiate? Would you initiate that? Or would they, they would initiate it? Yeah, so okay. mostly me because I think that I thought that, well, then you actually also as a female start to realize that there's a certain power women of all shapes and sizes have over young boys girls have over boys which is sex and the i think when girls learn that and realize that it's a very important crossroads of any girl's lives because you can go so many different ways with it you can go down the road of being respectful and respecting yourself and not allowing that to happen to you, no matter if you have a boyfriend or not. Or you can go down the road of thinking or convincing yourself that if you do are a bit loose with your body and with that boys will, that that's attractive to boys, whereas in actual fact they're using you. And then there's the middle of the friend zone. And then there's the friends with benefit zone where that's you're still friends no matter what, but there's a little bit of nookie going on on the side. And then there's the, the girls who will just are so desperate for love, so desperate to be accepted for affection of any kind that they just keep trying and trying and thinking that, oh, maybe this one will be it. Maybe if I'm with him or do this for him, you know, then he'll start to like me more. So there's so many different roads that you can go on, but I think that I didn't have that self-respect or confidence that I could be the girl who didn't who who didn't need to give of myself physically to a boy for any kind of acceptance because in the end it just made me look like oh you can call on Shelley for this or you can call on Shelley for that. You know, and, and it, it's not a very nice place to be. And then, of course, you start to get a reputation as well. We're all human beings and we all deserve respect and we all deserve to be treated with respect. So do, don't ever make anybody feel used. Don't ever just give yourself to somebody because you think that they'll like you better for it. You know, 
it's a huge mistake and it's a terrible road to go on and it leads to devastating consequences. So, yeah. Uh, but having said all that, if I wouldn't have been that kind of person and had some of the experiences that I had, it never would have led me to where I am right now. Which leads back to your first question of where I belong. <laughs> so. But so, so, but so, go back to the. Did you? Why didn't you have? You said self respect. Yeah. You didn't have self respect for yourself then. Why I, didn't you have self respect? Well, because I didn't even know what self respect was. You know, I didn't realize that. You know, I don't think. See, I was always quite a confident person, as in I could talk to anybody. I wasn't shy. But I didn't have very strong, I don't know, I, I don't think that I was taught what that looks like, what, what self-respect is. You know, I think that I was still working it all out, you know, I was still working it all out. And because it wasn't happening naturally, because I wasn't, re, you know, respected within a where I thought that I should be. I I don't I don't really know. I don't really know. Self-respect. It's it's I didn't even know what that looked like, what that meant, what that was. So, I think maybe in those years I was just experimenting, trying, looking, desperately seeking something to make sense, something to feel right, somewhere to feel like I belong, some, you know, because I definitely had beautiful friendships with very few people but unfortunately I didn't think that was enough at certain times and I was always wanting more or better or you know better why friends you, or why do you think you I want don't to know more? I just think that because you get caught up in in what other people say is what it should be you know what did you grow up with I don't know cliques in high school are powerful things and I didn't have the strength of character to be happy with where I was. I always thought that I needed to be better, smarter, prettier in this group with friends with that person. You know, even though I was having fun, you know, I just never felt completely satisfied. I just, and I think the weight thing had something to do with it as well. But self-respect is a term that I've only learned in my older years. And I'm really, I'm really glad that I have found it. But I think that sometimes you need to come to it in a very roundabout way. Yeah. Was there shame with what you would? Did you have any sense of I know this is wrong, even though you told me you were finding your way through it all? Never shame. Probably disappointment that it never led to anything. You know, oh, here we go. I did it again, but they're not going to call me. They're not going to take me out. You know. So there was always that disappointment, that why aren't I good enough feeling. But no, I don't know. I'm the, I'm really, uh, when I've met all the people that I've met, I've never really felt guilt, never really felt shame, never really felt thought too deeply. I think I've never really been a very deep thinker. And that's okay because I think sometimes the deepest thinkers have more mental illness problems. <laughs> You know, people who think too deeply or too much tend to drive themselves a little bit crazy. So I think that I was kind of lucky in a way because there were things that I was upset about, things that I was sad about, ways that I felt that I would like my life to be that it wasn't, things that drove me to 
not be able to sleep at night, you know. But generally speaking, I just let things roll off my back like water off a duck. You know, I just, things don't stick for too long. I don't take anything. I never did. And I still don't take anything too seriously. I don't think about things too hard, too much, too deeply. I'm very much a person who acts on impulse. So if it feels right, I'll have a go. If it doesn't turn out well, I won't do it again. And but yeah. so going back to the when the booty call thing, was there that took you to a bad place? Yeah, it did take me to a bad place. What stopped? I mean, what stopped you from being right? I'm not. Or did you? Was there a? There was a crossroad that I came to where I was you know, high school was finishing the opportunities were ahead for adulthood was right around the corner I lived in a home where finance there was constant financial instability my mother was the kind of person who never really learned how to take care of herself financially so she always had her father or a man or somebody that was taking care of her and I wanted to learn how to do that on my own. I also had been in a one of my best girlfriends I had a boyfriend and I started mucking around with him and that because that gave me some sort of sense of sickening power that I thought oh he's seeing me but even though I was always not the girl in the background yet again I wasn't the one going to the movies going to the dinners what but I felt like I all of a sudden had this power, you know, I could call him to me whenever I wanted and and that ended up falling into a huge heap because she found out and never has forgiven me to this day for it. I think for the first time in my life I really realized what a bad friend I had been and how bad that was for myself and for my own self-respect as we talked about. And I for the first time I realized that this is not the way I want to live my life and so I started feeling these urges to escape and to get away from the United States and to travel and to be somewhere there had to be somewhere in the world where I could learn more where I could meet different people where I could perhaps find that self-respect that I wasn't able to find and that sense of belonging going back to the original and question. that sense of belonging for sure yeah, my, my life started to crumble after that relationship came out into the open where I was found out to have been cheating on... And someone told was, this person yeah, that you were, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hurt, you know, it's awful because she was such a good friend to me and I treated her so badly and where I should have been more thoughtful, I wasn't thoughtful. I was just thinking about myself. But in a way, as you talk about what you've talked about, even though I'm not trying to excuse it, yeah, you had your needs. I did, but you know, in hindsight, which is a wonderful thing, it was such a bad thing to do to it, somebody. It was. I'm not saying, but, but yeah. I understand on some level why you. It's basically what I'm saying. Yeah, and and look, I mean, I understand. And you were now. young as well. Oh, I was only 18. I, you know, and and so this guy, he was a real asshole. You know, he was one of these guys who. Wanted his cake and to eat it too. He wanted the girl on the front and the girl in the back. He was really a, a, a douchebag, you know, as far as... He was an ass. 
And so knowing all that and knowing how unsettled I was and how I didn't feel like I belonged and I didn't have any self-respect and I didn't have anything to look forward to anymore. I wasn't excited about university. I wasn't excited about working, you know. And so I started and I worked at a restaurant and a particular girl that I worked with had just been to this kibbutz all pond and she told me all about that and that's where I decided I would go. And so um, that was the beginning of what I consider to be my real life <laughs> because all of a sudden I found, so I did, I went to this old pond in, in, in Israel and all of a sudden I was thrust into this life where for the first time ever I felt like I fitted in and I belonged and I could find people that were like-minded and popular, not popular, good, bad, pretty, ugly, rich, poor, fat, thin, Everybody was just in it for the same reasons, and it was to have this experience, this shared experience in this incredible place and these incredible uh, opportunities to just learn. And, and so my whole life just changed, and I loved it. I fell in love with the country. I fell in love with the kibbutz. I fell in love with the people that I was meeting, and I started to love myself again, and, well, for the first time probably, did you become aware of that? Yeah, I was becoming aware of that because I was making better choices. I was thinking for the first time probably, you know, thinking about outcomes. If I do this, then this can happen. If I do that, then that can happen. You know, and my mother had said to me, I don't know if um, we talked about this before, but my mother had said to me, don't run away because you take yourself with you wherever you go. And I didn't understand what she was talking about. And she said, go to Israel for sure, but you're still you. You're still going to go with your own head and your own baggage and your own. And I didn't really get that. But when I got to Israel, I was the same. I was the same Shelly, the same person who was craving the same love and the same affection and all those sorts of things. But I didn't, I found that I didn't need to go hunting for them or be fake about it or give of myself in any, because they were organic, genuine relationships that were happening because I found people that I just felt like I clicked with, belonged with, wanted to be with, never worried that I wasn't friends with him or her or them. It just became this wonderful, it was it was amazing, actually. So, yes, I took myself there, but I was finding that I really liked who I was. And I was realizing that no matter what my outer shell looked like, I, I loved experiencing life. I loved experiencing people. I loved the land of... I was going to live in Israel forever. So, you know, just then and there, after about six months of being on that old pond, I was like, nah, I'm never leaving. <laughs> Because I couldn't imagine what going back to Mich to America would be like. Well, it's How the, could I go back? Well, it's the, I mean, the phrase, the promised land, clearly yeah. means something in this instance, uh, yeah, over yeah. and above what's talked about Israel. But yeah. for you, you were taken to the promised land in terms I of what it gave taken, you, everything. So you always want to go back. Amen and hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> I was taken to the promised land. Yeah. Yes, I was. And I felt great and I loved it. And I was all 19, turned 20 while I was there. And then, yeah, slowly over time, you start to learn about you. You learn about friendships. You learn about adult relationships and how to take care of yourself and how to demand, command. 
you know, demand respect of other people because you respect yourself. Not compromise mm. values. Have values in the first place. Learn what they are. Make mistakes, but own them. And not depend on anybody else for your own happiness. You know, because I think that for so long I was searching outside of me to find some sort of genuine happiness. Like, other, if I was this, if I was thin, I'd be happy. If I had a boyfriend, I'd be happy. If I was in this crowd, this popular crowd, I'd be happy. If I was friends with her, who's a cheerleader, and could take me to the right parties, I'd be happy. Not. <laughs> no. That, and so all of a sudden I realized that real happiness and being happy is something that you shouldn't have to seek out. Because when it's all happening, it just happens. You know, you're just, you become happy. Because you're making good choices. Because you're surrounding yourself by people that you really want to be with. Because you're having experiences that you want to be having. And then there's this sense of calm and this sense of, you know, contentment that just kind of feels great. And then you don't want to lose it. <laughs> so, you know, there's that as well, learning how to navigate life with the ups and downs that it has. So, yeah, Israel changed my life. So, so go back to what you said. That was what your mom said. Yes, yeah, so my mom, so when I was making the plans to go, because I'm what very... The, what was the phrase you used, though? You take yourself with you wherever you go. And you got upset? I got upset because... because... I think, well, that meant, to me, that meant a couple things that... But at the time, I didn't really give it much thought. I didn't give that much thought because but, but I thought, what now? are you talking about? Now, because I realized that you can't run away from anything. And I've come to realize over time that you cannot, a new place, a new group of friends, a new home, a new job, a new suburb, you know, none of that matters because you're still you. And has it taken, I don't know, asking yeah. how old are you now? 53. How long has it taken you to realize that? Probably 52 years. <laughs> I think that I've only just... Well, no, I've, I think it's a realization that I've... No, it, it probably took me until I was like into my 40s before I started to realize what that really meant. And that, you know, to me what that really means is that you can change your environment, whatever that is, but unless you actually are okay with you and the people you're surrounding yourself and how you're living your life and who you're living your life with and all then all the outside all the bells and whistles all the decorations don't they mean nothing so they're all still experiences I don't look back and regret anything in fact I'm really happy that all of that happened you know, I'm really happy that I wasn't part of the popular group. I'm really happy that I've made friends with, you know, the burnouts. I'm really, you know, I'm really happy that all of that, the pregnancy, everything, because it's all kind of been steps on the way to where I am now. 
That's pretty amazing you can think that way. Well, yeah, but I mean, why wouldn't it? Because... Yeah, but I could easily sit here and say to you, you I could understand why that would make you feel... You, you've talked about it in a positive way, but you could easily yeah. talk about it in a, in a negative way and go, oh, you know, I didn't fit in, I didn't do this, I had a bad... You know, I was pretty... Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. You, could, you could have a very different perspective on that. Yeah. You don't have... You, you seem to have a very positive perspective well, I'm not on a, that. I don't... My glass is always full. No, well, then that's... <laughs> That says a yeah. lot about who you are because that is, we could easily think the opposite to that. I guess. I don't know how to think like that. No, you know, I mean, you'd made some choices and then those choices weren't there anymore and you made different choices. Yeah. And you, you know what I mean? So uh, that's, that's yeah. not easy. I remember even thinking to myself over the years, you know, the, the terms anxiety and depression and things like that because they've only come into the mainstream lingo of talk in the last sort of five years, perhaps maybe 10. Um, and I know that there's always been, there have always been people who've suffered with mental health issues like anxiety and depression, which touch what I, I don't, but I do definitely know people who do. I remember as a younger person thinking to myself when I was feeling down in the dumps or sad or if I really negative thing had happened to me or if I was you know had had a fight with somebody anything Ooh, Shelly feel this really feel this because you know what that might feel like some to somebody who has that and and then you'll know how good it feels when you don't feel like that anymore so I used to almost embrace the feeling bad or the feeling sad or the feeling regretful remote whatever it was mistakes you know anything and just like really trying to live in that moment and go really feel this because some people don't know how to recover from it or some people don't know how to feel the joy that's on the other side of it so yeah I've always kind of looked at it that way but yeah I guess I'm that's just my nature and so going back to the original question about Mm -hmm. where do you belong then yeah so You've, you, I can see how your life's moved on, and you've gone to different places. You met, mm. and you said to me at the beginning, I, "Where I am now is where I belong." Yeah. That's what your mum said about. Well, it doesn't matter where you are; it's you've got to. It's you take yourself with you wherever you go. Yeah. So, what brought you here? You've told me this outside the podcast. Yeah. Then, even though you said you went, you did all pan, and you. And then... Yeah. So I did all pan and felt fabulous being there. Loved it, loved every minute of it. Finally found a place where I really felt like I fitted in. Anyway, to make a long story short, I did go back with all intentions of making Israel my home and making Aliyah. I went back to the same kibbutz, Magan Michael, and I was um, I went back there with the idea that that would be my home. So I was doing a second alpan. Little did I know that I wouldn't end up making Aliyah. <laughs> Um, because I met Mark. Huh. Why does that make me cry? <laughs> Just does. Happy? Happy. Definitely happy. That was two weeks after we met. So I had to call my mother and tell her that I wouldn't be making Aliyah to Israel. But there was a possibility that I might be going to Australia because I was in love. And Mark was my first boyfriend. I didn't really know what I would do once I got here. Neither did Mark. 
Neither did his family. <laughs> I had no one here. I knew no one here. And so weren't you daunted completely by that or was Mark the buffer? You know what? I, I don't think about those sort of things. I never have. M Mark does. He thinks about, you know, because he thinks about every possible outcome what could happen, what might happen, what may happen, what will happen, what won't happen, whereas I just make a choice and do it. Yeah? So that's how I've always been, I suppose. Maybe it's not very smart, but it's kind of worked. <laughs> so I didn't even think about it. All I knew is that I really loved this guy, and, and he loved me, and... I was going to come to Australia, and that was very exciting. So I came. And then, then. going back to what you talked about at school, in terms yeah. of how did you fit in, Belo feeling belonged, like you belonged? Back to zero, ground zero again, because I had zero friends. But what happened was, when Mark, Mark was enrolled to do a science degree at the University of Melbourne. So there's this O week, this orientation week that happens. So I went along with him. You know, all the clubs and societies have stalls and stuff out there. And so I actually was attracted to the choir. There's the Melbourne Uni Choral Society. So I was attracted to that because I love to sing. And that was probably the only subject in my high school that I got an A in. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I went up to their booth there and I asked if you needed to be a student to belong, to join. And they said absolutely not, that they would take anybody in it, you know, who wanted to have a sing. And you didn't have to audition. It was very much a social choir. So I joined that choir and that was my first friendship group independently that I made. And I loved it. They were just perfect for me. Not perfect for Mark because he doesn't sing, but that was perfect for us because all of a sudden I had this independence and and I got a job at the local, at Rubenstein Supermarket on Chapel Street and I was, still this was all cash in hand, but we were able to move out of Mark's parents' house and get our own apartment and yeah, things kind of went from there. I, we bought our first house in Richmond and of course I had this, the mother's group that I became quite close with as well. And then we had second children. And then my drinking career started. <laughs> yeah, and things went a bit pear-shaped for a while after that. But, um, but that, we've had this conversation before. Yeah. But just now, was that, that was postnatal depression? Oh yeah, that was definitely postnatal depression. The, the interesting thing is that, you know, I've always been very happy wherever I've been, right? So you put me, since coming to Australia, you put me in any of the suburbs, I'll make friends. You know, I, um, I went to university as a 29-year-old. I got my teaching degree. I've always worked as a substitute teacher for the most part. Very happy. I've always found that one or two schools... You know, everything's kind of just worked. Everything's, you want something badly enough, you make it happen. It worked. It's worked. Mark and I, our relationship grew. Sure, we had our ups and our downs, but we were growing together. We were raising these children together. We were on the same page with all the important things, religion, 
politics, disciplinary, you know, the, the, the way that, the morals and the values that we and share. so how do you think, why do you think that was? Because if I look at my peers with a similar sort of age, mm. a lot of people don't have what you've talked about in their marriage. Yes, you were younger, so I, I get things change over time. Mm. What would you put that down to as to why you, all those things tick, tick, tick? Oh, I don't know. I mean, right, we're very different in our ways of thinking, right? So Mark is very logical, very mathematical, very philosophical, and he thinks things through very carefully. I'm much more emotion-based, if it feels right, if, if it makes sense in my head. I've learned how to step outside of that and think more critically through Mark. And he's probably learned how to let loose and not think so much through me. So uh, the old opposites attract works very well for us. But I think also because over the years we have decided that when we have a disagreement or we have something that we're on different pages about or we're angry at each other about something that we need to completely finish those arguments and those disagreements and never leave anything to blow up again you know remember when you said this or remember so even if it would, I remember, I know for, that we've had conversations and arguments and disagreements and things that have lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks because we'll just put it away for a little while and then come back to it. So maybe that's one of the reasons. Also, we're very, very open to the other person's perspective and point of view. I'm probably a lot, I'm probably unusual in that I don't judge anybody. Even if I completely can't understand where you're coming from on something or you've done something, unless it's just disgustingly abhorrent, like rape or murder or really hurting somebody. But I'll just go, okay, so that's how you think. That's not how I think. Let's just agree to disagree on it. You know, people can tell me stuff, and, and I don't judge them. I don't, sure, I like a good story. I like a good gossip, but I'm not going to go out and intentionally hurt anybody by spreading things, you know. And things just slide off my back. I don't internalize it. I don't worry about it too much. I just kind of believe that everything's going to just work out. And generally, they do. And did you, does that come from anywhere, do you think? I have no idea where it comes so from. Maybe parents, it comes... You know, your mother, was she like that? No. <laughs> My, uh, well, I guess she was in a way. She's very wise in a lot of ways and, and very... has made some really, really bad choices in a lot of ways too. Especially, she's been married or with four different people in her life. So her, her relationship track record is really bad. So I learned a lot about what not to do from her. Certainly each of her relationships I learned something from. And I think also my grandfather was my biggest role model, my Zadie, who I've talked about a few times. 
and he was he was with my nana until the day she died she died quite young 58 years old of a heart condition but i learned how a woman should be treated and loved so therefore when, everything you've said him. so everything you've said yeah you pay attention you observe what's oh, going yeah, on around yeah, yeah, you oh yeah 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 definitely so how do you think you listen how do I think I, I listen? I, I listen by watching and learning what other people are doing and talking to them and finding stuff out from them. But that's a, that's a skill. Yeah, I guess so. Because most people don't listen. Mm. Well, there's hearing and listening, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. So, and, and also you pick what you want to as well, don't you? You know, you sift through the information that you get and you, you pick out what's relevant to you. But don't you think now most people don't tend to you have conversations with people where they're not really listening to you? No, no, no. Absolutely. You can tell that within the first, first five seconds of meeting somebody because yeah. they'll be looking behind you to see who's in the room who might be better to talk to or who might be more interesting to have a conversation with. But you weed those people out very quickly. And I think something that I've learned through the years and certainly in the last couple of years in particular is that you don't need many people in your life you know you really don't you know you the it's not the amount of friends that you have it's not the the people who invite you to their parties it's not how many events you have in your calendar you know, it, it's all about the actual genuine experiences that you have with people that make you, that make you feel something. I get that completely. Yeah. Yeah. Then the last 12 months have been, you know, very much years of clarity for me and I mean I've talked to you about a lot of this too before the podcast too so there have been pretty couple of pretty significant things that have happened to me as an individual one of them obviously has been meeting Mark and moving to Australia another one has been losing a hell of a lot of weight finding fitness and joy in that as opposed to it being a chore <laughs> and why do you yeah. think you do you want to lose the weight well, I was uncomfortable. So I think before you, if you, if you grow up as a, like I grew up as an overweight kid, teenager, adult, whatever. So people knew me as a, a big girl. What And I was, you would overcompensate by being the loud one, the funny one, the drunk one, the one who parties the most, the last one who leaves. So there was that. But at the heart of hearts, I was uncomfortable in my own skin you know so you've got the you've got the superficial part of being overweight which is you look at everybody else and you think this is how you should look or this is what you should weigh or that life will be perfect if only you're thin right and then you've got the actual reality of it is that it's healthier <laughs> and you do feel more comfortable and more able to do things physically if you're not so heavy yeah and then of course you've got the psychological side of being an overweight person which is you're filling yourself with something food because whatever is going on is making you unhappy so this temporary fixation of something that tastes good feels good is kind of 
that band-aid of making whatever else isn't so great go so, away so yeah so answer that question then what wasn't why were you oh, eating but, so much then oh i think probably because well i never fitted in you know the whole thing of never fitting into a group you know you can say oh i want this i want this i want this but you're not actually doing anything to get it grow not having growing up in a house that where we didn't have much money so i wanted things that i couldn't have not having somebody that loved me you know a boyfriend a proper boyfriend so the whole guy thing with with being the booty call yeah yeah just not really i was comfortable with myself in so many ways and yet so uncomfortable with myself in so many other ways and i think that a very contradictory but I think that's part of the reason why I may have developed that I don't give a shit attitude and things slide off my back. I was trying to work out because it's, it's interesting you said that. Yeah. It's amazing that you you talk about all those things that have happened to you and mm. you clearly, as I said to you before, could have gone a completely different way to the way you yeah, are now. Yeah. So it's amazing that you, but it's obviously you've learned that you the way you can get through that, just my assumption of talking to you now mm. in this conversation, is that if you just let that all go, yeah. you don't sit with it. Because if you did, you, I don't believe we'd be having this conversation. Yeah, now. it would drive you crazy. You know I mean? So you've had to you've had to learn. That's a way to get through it, which is I a think very so. it's a skill to you know. I mean, it's a skill. It, it, it's you, a defense. Yeah. It's a mechanism. Yeah, it's a coping. It's a strategy. It that is you, a coping you, strategy. That you've worked out for yeah. you that works. Yeah, yeah, and there are a lot of contradictions in there. I I know there are, but whatever's happened, I've learned how to survive and and not let things. Stick. And I think that's probably part of the reason why Mark and I have been so successful because he's the kind of person where everything sticks. Yep. And okay. I'm the kind of person where very little does. So, you know, that that kind of balances itself out. And I'm, there's a lot of things he wishes he could be more like me in that way. And I kind of wish in a way that I could be more like him because then I might take things a little bit more seriously yeah but go back to the last you mentioned before you said the last one you got upset when you talked about it in the last 12 months you've had more yes 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 so um going back to what we talked about i had some postpartum depression after i had my second child and the way that i cope with that and because i've always been a buzz craver right so from the time i was 13 14 years old i was smoking pot but that was, a, yeah. so that again, going back to what we just talked about, was your way of coping with what was going on. Oh, yeah, escape. definitely. It was an escape. escape. Which is a very, Total escape. You're not different to, there'd be lots of people exactly yeah. like you in terms yeah. of whatever it is that's going on for them. That's just... Yeah, an absolute escape. But the difference, I think, with that is that I was always happy to come down. Do you know what I mean? So from whatever buzz I had... I was always happy to just come down again and be just normal and be me again. Whereas I think where people can run into trouble with addiction issues is where you can't, it won't come down. You're not happy to just be yourself again. And that's where I think drinking, I got into trouble with drinking. Because you enjoyed, you got I, the buzz, you'd like The that. buzz was covering up so much and the buzz was feeling so good and I wanted the more, the more, the more. And I wasn't so happy to just come down again. I was craving that next time where I could be buzzed again. And so that carried, so that's, you're talking about the, the postnatal, the second child. And yes, how you, and then, yes. Well, that's so. where it, it started from there. Started from about there. Yeah. And so if you, so to give people a sense who don't know you, obviously, the, yeah. in terms of how old your second child is now? 19. So 
It, so over 19 years, yeah. you've carried on drinking. drinking. Absolutely. Because you enjoyed how that felt and what it gave you, not enjoyed, but whatever it gave you. Yeah. And did you know deep down that you shouldn't be or there was no part of you that did went, oh, you know, come on. Not for so. a while. It took a while to realize that it was actually probably a really negative buzz to have or substance to use because like with with marijuana you can control kind of how much you have or whatever but with alcohol you get to a point where you probably know you should stop because you're feeling the effects of it and it's nice but you keep going and it's so socially acceptable as well I was going to say to you, which fits into the belonging bit. Yeah, that you... so com- completely socially acceptable thing to do. So Not you... only in Australia, but all over the world. Yeah, but then so I, I've, I've heard other people, some in particular, who talked about drinking and then just stopped drinking. Mm. And then all of a sudden felt like a, an outlier because people could understand. Yes. Why don't you drink? We're all drinking and you're not. You're not, yeah. She talked about not belonging, yeah. not feeling part of this group yes. of society that we all typically live in, not everybody, obviously. All of a sudden she wasn't there. Yeah. So you, that's... Yeah. So it was very, it was a, definitely a way to fit in. Yeah. Definitely a way to fit in. Then we moved to, so I started drinking and it was very acceptable and that little buzz you know, you know how I talked about before um, things that enhance your experiences. So I felt that those early days when I started drinking, it was definitely enhancing my experiences. So it was making me more fun, or more accepted, or more part of the the group, or you know, the funny one, or whatever. I liked it. wasn't drinking every day. wasn't drinking a lot. Like, but there would be the bingey sort of stuff. Then we moved away to a country town for a couple of years, and it was so ingrained in the culture there, the drinking. And I probably was looking for the people to party with because I always look for the party group, you know, especially if I don't know anyone. And can um, I ask you in why, going back to that, because I've heard this mentioned before yeah. as well, because I come from a city and so I don't understand even like get the logic of why do people... Because what else is there to do? Why what do else drink? is there to do? There's nothing else to do. Well, in that country town, yeah, there's nothing so, else to do. But then typically, I'm assuming that's not the only country town where people drink. It must be that's the generally the, the rule that people, if you go into other country towns, people will drink. It's, it's a predominant thing to do. Look, in this particular country town that we lived in, of course, not everybody drank. You know, there were, Mark went and taught at the high school. And, you know, it was a social thing to drink. But there were also, I was in a little play group with Kara. She was three years old at the time. And not all those women drank. You know, there was definitely part of people who lived normal, everyday, you know, productive, whatever, lives. But for whatever reason, and I was also 40, 41 or something, and I was, I guess, a midlife crisis. You know, as a lot of people have. So I had the house, I had the kids, I had a job, I had, you know, this great life in Australia. I was 40-something years old, and then I sort of was at the, is that it? What, what's next? Is this what's going to be my life from now on? You know, so there was that 
midlife sort of crisis of what am I going to do next? I've been with the same man and for God's sakes, we actually still love each other. Is that boring? You know, so there was all that sort of stuff going on as well. And drinking was just like, yeah, yet again, that way to kind of band-aid and escape and be the life of the party. And But slowly, slowly it started to become... I wanted to do it more often than I didn't want to do it. Yeah. And how did that impact on? I mean, Mark, Mark hated it. He absolutely hated it. He he would, he didn't mind the first couple of drinks, but then when I would go past that line of where it feels good and start to get messy or slurry or would silly, he, but would he tell you? Come he on, would Shelley, tell yeah, me. You know, yeah. He would, and I would tell him he was crazy. I'm would you argue at those times because you wanted to carry on? And he we knew would you argue, didn't. and then he would. Eventually, he stopped telling me until the next day when I was sober again. And so, would there, was there shame around the fact that the way you felt the next day, knowing that you shouldn't have done what you did, or not at all? There was, but I don't know. In my head, I could talk my way out of it, make him feel like. That was only a bleep or I won't get that drunk again or, you know, and then I would do things like, you know, for a couple of weeks, I would say measure my drinks and only allow myself three or only allow myself four, you know, and that would work fine for a while. It would, the good times were so good and, you know, when I was sober, I'm like our relationship was so good and the kids and everything were fine. You know, I could kind of work my way, manipulate my way out of it every time, I suppose. But yeah, no, the, and then as, as it progressed, so we left Sonarna, we left this little town and we moved to Belgrave. And I thought, oh yeah, fresh start. But I, of course, you take yourself with you wherever you go. And I was right, still right. that drinker. You know, I was still that person looking for the party crowd. I was still that person looking, ooh, we're in a new town now. Can I be accepted again? And, you know, can I find the cool crowd? Or You know, in the back of my head, I was looking for acceptance in the community. And you But know. if you pick things, th th those are all challenges. And I can relate to mm. having lived in another country and moving to a new country. It's a big challenge. It's clean off for everybody because mm. it requires a lot of you to to put the effort in, or not, depends on who you are, mm. to be accepted, to fit in, to be part of something. And it depends what age you do that as well. Obviously, that makes a difference if you're younger than I think, than if you're older. Mm. But that's... You picked challenging things which would put pressure on you and the way that you have to find a way to fit in and cope with all of that. That's mm. not, it's not mm. easy. No. Why no, do you think you've done that? Because I don't think about it. I just do it. So you, but do you, interesting then, do you think if you were more like Mark or somebody who did think about it, then you, perhaps you wouldn't do it? Mm-hmm. One of us you, has to take the chance. I was about to say, can I, I can ask you, do you, would you think you'd be a better or, or, or a worse person than you would be now because you did? Or who knows? Because I know you can't pick, you can't imagine that life because you don't live it. I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine what it would be like if I didn't take all the chances and just go for things. I'm, I, I don't know. I think, that, and Mark and I, look, we do talk about it. It's not like we don't decide where, what suburb or what house or, you know. So we do, but but no, if I thought about it too much, I probably wouldn't do it. 
So, yeah. So, yeah, so we moved to Belgrave and it was fabulous. The kids fitted right into school and sport and I got a job, you know, with my relief teaching yet again and, and drinking got me to my job, my current job as well because we went to a trivia night and um, I met you know, at the table. We were, It was new friends that we had met in Belgrave and they invited us to this trivia night. And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's go. That'll be fun. And we're sitting at a table and drinking, drinking, getting. And sitting at a table next to us was a group of women who, unbeknownst to me, were teachers. And they were drinking and having a good old time as well. And as the night wore on, I started chatting with some of them, discovered that they were from a school, and ended up giving them my number to call me to do some casual work. And that was 11. This is my 12th year teaching at that same school so that worked out really well so drinking has had some positive effects as well or things that have come out of it but basically through the years I I definitely started to rely much more heavily on the buzz of alcohol and would inevitably I'd cross the line between a buzz and being drunk and I want and I was getting drunk more often you know nobody really notices on most occasions because a lot of people are doing exactly the same thing or they might notice and keep it in the back of their mind or I don't really know but I knew that I was starting to be known as the one who gets the drunkest and how did you yeah. know that? I just I just knew because there were people who I could tell backed away in certain ways. In other situations they didn't, so all they hadn't before and then they did. Mm. So you sensed there was something going I on. I sensed there was something. And I knew I don't know. I just I just there were and then, then there started to be incidences where I would forget stuff. Like, I would get that drunk that I wouldn't remember things that I'd said or done. Because someone would um, pull you up on that the next day or something, or Mark would say to you, oh, by the way, you Mark you know. would say it to me, or I would try to remember from this time to that time, and, and I just remember. couldn't. And me being the person that I am, I would start to question for the first time in my life, because I never generally would question things that I would say to people. And I could foot and mouth just like anybody else and you know I'm pretty forthcoming with with just blah putting it out there I'm open with sex drugs rock and roll you know everything and then for me to not remember I start I would start to question oh shit what have I actually said did I say something did I offend somebody did I you know so you knew that was when and Mark still hated it Cause he, you know, there were times where I would get that messy and I would like embarrass him. So even though you knew that, which uh, and given what you talked about your marriage and the rest of it, Mm. the need for the buzz Mm. and what it gave you was stronger than the fact that you knew that it was upsetting him, Mm -hmm. which I can understand. Yeah. And I kept on just saying to him, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'll be fine. And when I'm good, I'm good. You know, when I'm not drinking. So I wasn't a an, an, uh, classic alcoholic in the sense that you would, a lot of us think of an alcoholic as being somebody who can't get through a day without 
drinking, can't get through an afternoon, who will sneak drinks at work or who will, you know, none of that was me. So I think there's, you know, the, the, the cliche 50 shades. So there's a big, there's big gray area between that classic street alcoholic and then there's functioning alcoholics and then there's binge drinkers and then there's a whole lot of gray in between. And I think a lot of us would be reluctant to really be honest and admit to ourselves where we actually fit in in the, that area. And so knowing that Mark hated it, I felt bad. I did, and I would always apologize, and I would make up something to say next time I won't, and I'll start measuring my drinks again, and I'll only drink on a Friday, and I'll only drink on a, you know... But I was fooling him, fooling me, fooling everybody. My kids started to not like who I was. They would be embarrassed if they had friends over and I would start to party with their friends, you know, things like that. I would start to look for reasons to drink. If there wasn't a grand final day or an Australia day or a cup day or a barbecue, or I would invent one and have people here I would suggest to somebody else to have something and you know and so start to really make excuses where it would be socially acceptable and that Mark would be having a few drinks too girls weekends away nights out and I would go to bed quite often feeling really shitty you know that I'd done it again drank too much again, you know, got messy again, couldn't remember what I did again, you know. So I was, and I would do like a dry July or I would do a Feb fast and I would never make it to the end. You know, I would get a couple weeks in or whatever and think, oh yeah, I'm good. But yeah, I started to realize that I could definitely be going down the black rabbit hole of alcoholism and it scared me. So yeah, I was looking for a way to not drink anymore. That's for sure. And then, what was the... And then, so I was looking for a way, so, um, not to drink anymore, and so I was trying to reduce the amount of alcohol that I... I was trying lots of different things. I would even say to Mark, I gave up, you know, I lost all this weight, and I've stuck with that and maintained my fitness level of fitness for six years. Now, what, I can do it with alcohol as well I can moderate and Mark would just roll his eyes and go yeah okay you know but the amazing thing about Mark is that he never gave up on it you know he would always every time I would try he would be fully there and supportive which is nice but then I think what has so what actually ended up happening was I had a night where I was drinking here with a couple of girlfriends these girls, these are girls, one of them I see very regularly and one of them I just see a couple times a year. And we've done some 50 kilometer walks together and so we share a lot of very personal experiences together. And so I had the girls over here one night just to catch up. I had my 750 mil bottle of vodka in the freezer. One of them had a couple of cans, one of them had a bottle of champagne. And we sat here and we did a lot of drinking 
within a very short amount of time. And at some point during that night, my one of my my middle boy, the one, <laughs> the one who was the my middle child anyway, came home. He was the postpartum baby. He was here, and we were chatting. What I thought was normal, sort of chitty chat chats, and and I was messy by this stage. And then off he went. And then the girls left at some point. And then I woke up that next morning knowing that I had to drive him to the train station. Because at this point he didn't have his driver's license. So I dropped him off the train station so he could get the bus to work. This, you know, I was feeling really hungover this particular morning. Which was not uncommon for, you know, you lose a day of the week when you're, when you're hungover. Splash water on my face and... Tried to remember, tried to remember what had happened the last sort of hour of the night. Oh, what time did those girls leave? And yeah, I remember speaking to Spencer and having a laugh. Anyway, we get in the car and he's very quiet. I might need a tissue for this bit. Yeah, he's, and then... You have to apologize. So, we get in the car, and he's very quiet. And I said, what's wrong? And he's like, oh, nothing. And we've got a good relationship. What's wrong, Spence? What's wrong? He goes, you don't remember, do you? And you know that feeling when, from, from the tip of your toes to the top of your head, you just get this rush of holy shit. And I just thought, oh my God, what have I done? And apparently I had belittled him and told him he was the... Oh! <laughs> anyway, I had said some very unkind things to him and that, that, that really upset him. And... Things that I never, 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 ever would have said. And I don't even know where they came from or why I said them or in that context. And the other girls that were here, they didn't hear me say it. They were talking amongst themselves. And, and apparently I'd been so cruel. And he went up to his room and he had his girlfriend with him and he was crying. He was so upset. I just said to him, Spencer, I'm so sorry. You know, I don't know what I said, and he had told me what I had said. I could could not remember it, and I just thought alcohol is really fucking me up. That was I don't know a weekday, obviously, and then I really, really, really started searching for some way to to not drink anymore. And I knew that I had to either find a way to moderate or stop completely. And I'm not a very good person with moderation, but I didn't know how I was going to do it. Because, you know, you might think, like, all the years that Mark hated it, and Mark was so disappointed. Why was it that, you know, my child... Because of my kid. You know, he's my kid. A mother doesn't do that. A wife, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, a friend, sure, you know, but not your kid. So anyway, so I just happened to be scrolling through Facebook, which is 
another one of my little addictions. So I just happen to be scrolling through Facebook and sometimes you get things up in your news feed about events or books or recommendations or whatever. And it was a book by a woman called Annie Grace and it was called This Naked Truth. It was how to change your relationship with alcohol or whatever. And I just thought, oh, that looks great. <laughs> so I downloaded it to my Kindle and I started to read it. And all, it, all she says is, you know, 30 days, do a 30-day experiment. And if you can't stop drinking for 30 days, then you've probably got a real problem. And in this book, it also describes the science behind alcohol, what it does to your brain, what it does to your body. She tells stories about herself, and a lot of the, her stories hit home with me. And I would journal, so I was writing down things at the time as well. And all of this kind of came at a time where I really needed to find it and it all made complete and total sense to me. I think a couple of days before that I had been to a girlfriend's son's 18th birthday party and again gotten too drunk even after the whole thing with Spencer had happened and thought fuck you are never going to be able to stop this are you Shelly? This is just gonna get you. You're gonna need to maybe get some professional help. So I had that party found this book the whole book made sense to me the journaling made sense to me and I haven't put a sip in that was it done how long ago was that? done, that was nearly 10 months ago and people have said to me over those 10 months oh my gosh was that hard for you what are you, good for you you're a better person than me I couldn't have done that and all I can say to any of that is that going back yet again to that if it's not enhancing your experience, don't do it. I've realized that no amount of alcohol is going to enhance any experience. So instead of looking at not drinking as giving something up or missing out on something, or not enhancing my experiences, it's become, it will only make it worse and ruin them, and I don't need them. And so, you know how some people who don't drink, you kind of count your days that you don't drink for? Well, I've started, I started to count experiences. Yeah? times where I would have experiences or times where I would have written myself off by drinking too much so grand final day or cup day or a barbecue whatever going away camping whatever it is where I would have looked at the clock and gone oh is it too early to start having now it's like experiencing those things just as me as just sober for lack of better terms or just as yourself and they're so much more rich and exciting and real. Yeah, so like it, there has not even been a day, not a moment where I've craved alcohol or wanted it back in my life in any way. It's just, it's, it's amazing. That is amazing. It's amazing and I think it's all mind, mindset, you know, or realization that Yeah. I belong.
But that point you make there, how does that change in those experiences where you would have with the people that you would have and now you don't? Okay. I think that a couple of things happened in the beginning in particular. So when I would be in situations with people who notoriously would know me as being the one to be the drunkest or get in, get on it or, you know, with, with them, a couple of things would happen. The first thing would be they would say, are you ever going to drink again? And then they would start to tell me about their own <laughs> drinking. So their own experience with drinking. So to sort of justify why it's, why it's okay for them to still drink, which is fine. I don't judge anybody. Like I said before, you do whatever you do, but you don't need to explain it to me. And yeah, sure, good on me because I needed to change some behaviors in my life, but I'm no better than anybody else because I've decided that. And, and then... You know, some people I don't really see all that much or that often anymore because a lot of it was based on partying together. But the people that I've seen consistently and have through the years, they just kind of accept that that's, that I'm not drinking. Geez, experiences are richer. You know, I'm present, I'm focused, I'm hearing, I'm listening, I'm seeing. Yeah, and, and I just keep wondering, you know, and, and then, you know, I, I wonder to myself, why did I feel this need that I had to drink so much or get buzzed so heavily or, you know, when life is so rich, just normal, you know, as it is. Not to say that I don't think that there is, there are experiences to be enhanced with partyables, okay? So I will still, you know, I'm not like the kind of person who, if if somebody at a party was passing around a joint, I would definitely be into it. You know, I'm still happy to experience things that are outside of just nor normal everyday living. However, alcohol, the way that I was using it, was not enhancing my experiences, nor do I see that it would now. So when a friend of mine would say to me something like, well, maybe, you know, if your child, one of your children get married one day and everybody is having a glass of champagne to toast them, that would be something that you might do. When I think about that, I think, but why? Why would the glass of champagne make the experience of my child getting married any more exciting or, or rich or wonderful? So to her, I would say, probably not. So when people do ask me, will you drink again? Are you going to drink again? Probably not, because... I don't feel like anything's missing by not drinking and I don't feel the need, the craving to do it. I don't, you know, does that make sense? Completely. Yeah. So I never would say never to anything, but at this point, and here we are 10 months down the track, I'm still too afraid that I would slide down a slippery slope of 
needing it, you know, being becoming dependent on drinking again. And I don't moderate well anything. <laughs> I mean, I've learned to moderate food. I've learned to moderate exercise and certain things like that. So maybe I could learn to moderate alcohol as well, but I don't really particularly want to. I don't see that there's a benefit in it. And geez, things have gotten much nicer at home. You know, Spencer and I have talked about it and I mean, he completely forgives. Oh, and that was something I was worried about. Um, and Mark, he's funny. Mark's like, why? Why was it Spencer? You know, why, why didn't you do it for me? And I said, well, because, you know, when people spruik unconditional love, it's really only for your children, I think, in my experience. You know, there's... As much as I could say, you know, Mark and I have this unconditional love for each other, there's still conditions on it. He, you know, if he beat me up or, if, you know, made, did something horrible. But if my kid did it, I'd probably forgive him, <laughs> you know. So I think there's that true unconditional love is with a child. Yeah, I have apologized to Mark because I think he deserved it. And how's that you know, since then, and those, how, how's your relationship changed? Would you uh, say there's a noticeable change in the way the two of you are together, or not? Well, there definitely is, and I, I think that that comes from, Mark used to, like, worry, it would come to Friday night, and he would start to worry that I would get on it and, and drink too much and become that ugly Shelly that he might talk about. And now there's no fear of that happening. You know, so if there's no worry about that happening, it's like if, you've got in a, if you're in a relationship, an abusive relationship, and you're walking around on eggshells because you don't want to set that person off because they might smack you or they might lose their temper or whatever. So if that behavior isn't there anymore, there's no reason to walk around on the eggshells because there's no worries that it's going to happen. So when you take away that worry, then, you know, it kind of frees you up to just live. Got to get that. Yeah. Kind of an emotional mess. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a Feels lot. Feels good, though. That's yeah, it is. It's a lot to, you know, to have been through. To yeah. To work your way through it. Yeah. Come out with this... From this conversation, I can see there are strategies that you have put in place that yeah. have helped you, guide you through your life to work out how to get through whatever it is your challenge you face. Yeah, 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 there is. So you're, you're whether it's smart, and it doesn't matter whether it's intelligent or whatever it is, but you as a person have created, which is a skill, those ways of finding solutions to your mm. problems. Yeah, which yeah. Which is pretty amazing because there'd be lots of people you. who wouldn't be able to do that. Thanks. And one thing, I'm mindful of time, one thing mm. I want to ask you is, you talk about unconditional love, and you talk about for your children, and, mm -hmm. you t and I can see your children are right up there, yeah. you know, at the top. What was your mother like to you? And you mentioned before there's some things about your close relationship or whatever, but yeah, how was she? Look, my mom and I have, have, she's always been, and she's probably the one who's taught me that there's nothing that you shouldn't talk about. You know, like there was never a subject, there was never an issue that you couldn't 
talk about that was out of bounds and she was always she's very left in her politics and I'm grateful for that because so am I um, very open-minded to other people's opinions and listen to other people's opinions but then make my own judgment um, the only thing that you know and my mom and I I hold her I have a lot of love and you know for her but she's met respect in financial choices that she's made and dependence on other people is something that I um, needed to learn how to do by not living with her. Does that make sense? Yes. So I needed to get out there and be a part of the big wide world and learn how to be independent and resilient and make my own money pay my own bills, live that quote-unquote adult life that I never learned how to do from her. My relationship with my mom, you know, it's more of a friendship, I would say, than a, you know, mother-daughter kind of thing. And I've, I haven't been parented for, since 1985, 1986. You know, so I've kind of raised myself and that's probably actually another reason why I didn't listen to Mark, <laughs> you know, where when he was telling me that things were, were, weren't good for me or that my behavior wasn't acceptable or that he didn't like, you know, because I, I didn't grow up with a father or whatever, I would sort of rebel, that you can't tell me that sort of yeah, thing, you know. In, absolutely makes complete so, yeah, sense. So, yeah, that kind of fits that. in too, so. You've had to learn, yeah. Yourself, as you myself, just said. yeah, and so you wouldn't, yeah. Even though I knew that he was right, you know, you're gonna always believe because you've had to believe mm. that you will do what you think is the right thing to do, and even if there's a part of you that doesn't think that, it's still well, that's my choice, right? Because you, you've had to make those choices. Mm. And look at it, and it wasn't until the reality of the not only being self-destructive with alcohol, because it is a poisonous drug that kills and hurts and destroys people's lives. And it very, very, very well could have with mine. But yeah, it wasn't until I saw that I was actually hurting one of my own children that I realized that I really, really had to do something to change it. And, you know, it could have been this book that I found or, or something that I read or you know, I didn't want to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, that sort of thing, because they're like a religion or a, as far as I know, unto themselves. You needed to find it within yourself. The only way that you're ever going to change any behavior and have it stick and be permanent is if it really means something to you. Yeah, so, and mindset. Mindset's everything. So, yeah, that that's how I see it, so... Yeah, yeah. Did that answer your question? It did. <laughs> yeah, good. No, good. Good. Yeah. Okay. I'm mindful of time and it's been a great conversation. Yeah, good. So, good. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to More Real. I truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me. If you have, please tell anyone you know about More Real. If you've enjoyed listening, and learned something, then I would be so grateful if you could leave a five-star review, as this will help other people to find this podcast. I'm very grateful, as always, 
for your support.